This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Many of us are already planning our New Year's resolutions, but let's face it, they rarely stick. Well, Peloton's got a gift for you. Get up to $200 off accessories like non-slip grip dumbbells, cycling shoes, heart rate monitors, and more with the purchase of a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Don't wait. Get this offer before it ends on December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com. All access memberships separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Hi again, and welcome back. I'm so glad you could join us. I know our door is a little bit hard to find, nestled between the time traveler simulator and the burned down robot factory, but here you are. Got a question about tomorrow? Well, you are in the right place. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood futurology shop, where you can get the answers to tomorrow's questions today. On today's trip to and from the future, we are considering questions of identity, science, and certainty. Listener Danielle wrote in with this question, which goes like this. I will read it to you now. Hi, Rose. I know you've talked a lot about the privacy concerns around getting your DNA sequenced. I get it. But I also really want to know where I'm from. According to my family, our ancestors were shipped to the United States during the slave trade. But I don't know anything more, and nobody wants to talk about it with me. I feel like the only way I can get concrete answers is by doing a DNA test. Is it worth it? Should I do it? To help answer this question, I called Dr. Alondra Nelson, the president of the Social Science Research Council at the Institute for Advanced Study and the author of the book The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome, And if I sound nervous at all in the interview, that's because I have been a huge fan of Dr. Nelson's for many, many years, and I was sort of freaking out through a lot of, especially the beginning of our conversation. So here we go. Dr. Nelson, thank you for coming on the show. I'm very excited. Um, I get this question a lot. I bet you get this question more than I get this question (laughs) about whether someone should get their DNA sequenced. So when people ask you this, how do you approach this question? Where do you begin when someone asks you, hey, should I sequence my DNA? Well, I begin with uh, understanding that it's their question and that it's about their aspirations. Uh, you know, I, I use a phrase in my work called genealogical aspiration. So that the qu- understanding that the question really emerges out of whatever their genealogical aspirations are. And those are varied and multifaceted. So, um, you know, they could be uh, about trying to resolve something related to adoption. It could be general curiosity about someone's ancestry. Um, In the case of many of the people that I've spent time with in my research, it's um, both, it's both those things sometimes, you know, but also these kind of bigger um, kind of historical issues uh, around uh, racial inequality. And so, um, I have spent a, more time than your average bear thinking about these things. And so I do understand that I have something to insight to offer, um, but I certainly cannot pr- provide an answer. I can provide some insight and some things to, to ponder as one is thinking about making that decision. Yeah. What questions should someone ask themselves before they decide yes or no on this? 
I think they should be clear about what they're trying to find out. So, you know, uh, uh, so some of my um, interviews with people, it's not until after they've taken a certain test experience that they realize that the test result was not what they wanted to hear. So, uh, for example, um, you know, there used to be, I think this is this uh, is no longer in operation, uh, a project called the National Genographic Project, which was um, a kind of citizen science endeavor to um, map kind of human migration uh, and haplotype groups using, you know, genetic markers over kind of space and time. And, uh, you know, some of the people I would interview would get those results. And I write about one of them, but this happened on numerous occasions. Uh, and I got a result that said, you know, your um, haplotype group, uh, you know, we infer that it we can situate it in Ethiopia, you know, plus or minus 50,000 years ago. So, you know, this is the Ethiopia of the Old Testament. This is old Ethiopia. And this was an African-American person and 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 who effectively said, um, well, I could have told you that, you know, uh, and I didn't need the test to tell you that. So one of the things is sort of, what do you really want to know? And then, you know, who do you want to know it from? So, um, and, you know, do you, does it matter to you that it's a big company or a small company? Um, Does it matter to you that the company can, you know, that the company offers you the ability to easily um, make your genealogical data, your genetic data interoperable with conventional genealogical data. Um, So, you know, that might point to um, one company or service over another. Um, Do you want, I mean, and these are also like some consumer decisions. Do you want to pay once and get information and get data? Do you want a subscription model? The companies want you to have a subscription model in which you, you know, pay again and again to get, um, new information as they have bigger data sets and different algorithms and all of that. Uh, so there's a, there's more, I think people need to be really clear about, um, about their genealogical aspirations. And, and from there, then they can, that helps to inform the decision about the, what, what service they might use. Do you have your DNA sequenced with any of these companies? I did one uh, test with a company called African Ancestry, um, which is the a company that I studied closely. Uh, that was uh, um, uh, an early company in the U.S. market that still exists. It starts in about uh, 2003. Um, and I did it because, um, uh, you know, not because I was interested, actually, terribly interested, but because by the time I was finishing my research, there was quite a lot of interest by other people like you about whether or not I had done the test. And it became um, an issue around, uh, you know, became an issue of, of not quite credibility, but sort of like, do you, do you know the thing about your, about which you're speaking? Um, and so, uh, you know, and I did it in a public reveal. So I was also interested in my work and the ways in which uh, companies tried to generate interest. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I want us to remember as we get to, you know, close to the 20th anniversary of the first direct-to-consumer genetic testing in the U.S. is that this was a startup um, and that the, it was not a foregone conclusion that this would would succeed. And so, you know, the genealogical aspiration, the consumer desire in some ways, uh, you know, existed in other ways before, you know, people had been interested in genealogy for a very long time, but it really needed to be drummed up by the companies over time. And one of the ways that it, that was done was through these kind of reveal reveals. And and now of course, through these um, genealogy television shows. One thing that's interesting to me in tracking the sort of tech business side of this is that 
subscriptions are dropping, interest is dropping, they're not making nearly as much money as they used to be. And there is a big sort of question within these companies. There's a little bit of a freak out happening right now that like this might actually not be sustainable. It might have been a fad. People might lose interest in these questions. And these big companies might have to find other revenue streams, which of course then is a, another question around privacy and where your data goes and pharmaceutical companies working with 23andMe, et cetera, et cetera, um, which opens up a whole nother piece of this question, which is, you know, do you know where your data is then going after you give it to said company, um, which is often very opaque and very hard to find out, right, that you don't necessarily know. Um, I did not know, I learned from your book that African ancestry began before 23andMe, and it was one of the oh, very, yes. very early ones. I did not know that. I thought it was really interesting. I would say to your point, there were lots of companies that began before 23andMe, um, and some around the same time. Most of them do not exist. And you know, to your earlier point, like where is that data? Right. So uh, some in the you know, political economy of it, you can follow that one company was acquired by another and you assume that the data went there. But in other cases, like we actually have no idea. You know, one thing you know, I, would, I would suggest that people should be thinking is sort of what will I do if X company that I use goes out of business and I don't know where that data is? And did I read, you know, the 50 page, the 100 page, you know, terms and conditions? Um, am I clear about what my my you know rights are um, and what my role is should should the company go out of business or should it be sold? What are some misconceptions that you think are out there that people might have around what they could be getting from these tests or the answers that you know they might have a question that in fact these tests can't answer? What are some of those maybe like non-answerable questions? I think most of the questions are are. Uh, this is a soci- the answer of a sociologist, so let me say that. <laughs> I think most of the of the questions are fundamentally unanswerable by the the, the, the technology, frankly, uh, because what people are after um, with these aspirations are meaning and connection and filling in pieces of a puzzle of a narr- of, narr- of their life narrative or their family's life narrative, and so um, so getting you know a data point that fills that in. Is, is as, I, as I say in my work again and again, is actually just the beginning. And so I think there's an expectation that the data point, you know, an inference about something about you, you know, based on data from you in most cases, um, is going to fill it all in. And it'll just be like the puzzle, you know, you've got, I'm picturing like a jigsaw puzzle, it's all black and white, and then you have that one missing piece and you put it in and then the puzzle's complete and then it becomes multicolor or technicolor, right? You know, and that's not what happens. You know, it might put the piece there, but all of that other stuff is sociality, sociology and politics. And so in, in my work, uh, which is primarily with people of African descent, um, you know, I think there's. I think there's an awareness of this. I mean, more than I think um, in the general population, uh, because, you know, people know that when you fill in that puzzle piece about an inferred great, great, great grandparent, that what's not going to happen necessarily is this kind of technicolor dream in which this person's family or that part of your family embraces you, you know, Um, that knowledge or information can be confirming of something you suspected, but the confirmation might be traumatic. So that there was um, sexual violence, for example, you know, in a family a few generations back in the context of, of racial slavery. Um, 
it, there are certainly instances again and again in which people on uh, you know platforms that allow you to do the genetic research and then maybe use that to find people on a family tree who are living you know ancestors or living sort of relatives uh, relatives and scare quotes you know those are not always um, happy family reunions um, sometimes. Uh, you know, there certainly have been lots of instances in which people say I've been blocked from having access to this person's family tree that would allow me to continue to fill in the puzzle pieces of the story that I'm trying to tell. So, you know, the experiences can be, they still require this negotiation that's well beyond the genetic test. Um, And, you know, the cases I most write about are um, about the experience of African-Americans, but it's certainly true for adoptees. Um, it's true for donor-conceived children. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the thing that people are actually wanting is, uh, is typically not just information, but connection. And the test really only gets you part of the way there. Right. It's like a certain way to think about history, but it is not a complete relationship to the past. Um, Although, you know, Ancestry.com has done a lot of work to try to convince you that that is the case, those advertisements. And um, I love them. um, Kyle Kyle is my favorite. Yeah. (laughs) Kyle, who goes from, you know, Kyle, who's wearing lederhosen and then switches to the kilt, you know, I mean, come on. Yes. Fantastic. The The sartorial meets the genealogical meets the genetic. I like to imagine that Kyle now only wears kilts like that is it. (laughs) It is his only outfit. He is like a fully committed at this point. So that's in my head. He's walking around in a kilt somewhere. (laughs) Um, So another thing that also I get asked and and you probably get asked, too, is that, you know, as you mentioned, some of these sites allow you to then interface with an ancestry portal of some kind, um, including things like GEDmatch, which also then potentially can be used for things like policing and things like that. And um, I'm curious, you know, how you talk people through those decisions. You know, it's one thing to decide that you want to know some amount of information about yourself. It's another thing to then kind of make a decision around opening that data up to a broader swath of users, points of access. How do you kind of talk to people about those questions? So, you know, the first thing I I try to remind people of is the fact that it feels like a very you know, so much of this is in a very U.S. American frame, and it feels like a very individual decision, like the ultimate kind of American, you know, in quotes, pioneer decision, like, I'm going to find out who I am, you know. And in this case, the, the you know, the, the sort of frontier, um, you know, with all of its problematic implications is, you know, this personal data, the ultimate intimate data. But of course, genetic information is never only about you. It's about countless you know, known and unknown people, some of them who you, whom we consider nuclear family, some who may be nuclear family that you do not know, um, uh, you know, and, and so you're making a, even in making a purchase decision as an individual, you're actually making a decision with collective community implications. So that's always the case. And then taking that a step further, you know, participating in, um, you know, something like GEDmatch, which had been, you know, initially imagined as, you know, a a pretty interesting third party application, a citizen science application, people could um, get access to their data. And I think one of the, you know, the important things to note is that it wasn't 
clear, I think, in the early days of the industry that individuals would be that interested in their data. And so it you know, became the case that people wanted their data and then they needed something to do with it. So, you know, GEDmatch fulfilled and, and, and similar services fulfilled a pretty um, important service. Um, but of course, we know that uh, GEDmatch came to be used um, and the criminal justice system without the, the people's use. So this is the, the kind of unintended uses and unintended consequences uh, of this. And, um, you know, it's it's deeply problematic. And, and so um, I, I think one of the ways I, I, I try to explain this to people, um, because it's, it's hard to wrap one's mind around, you know, we just, there's just been a conviction in the Golden State Killer case, which is a, you know, notorious um, serial killer case. Um, you know, what I want people, so it's, when you hear a case like that, you just think like, whatever it takes to get this person off the street, like, this is horrifying. And it's like the worst kind of, of criminal, um, you know, pathological behavior. But then I remind people that, um, you know, what if all of your DNA and the DNA of relatives of yours that you had uploaded into GEDmatch was trawled through by criminal justice authorities in the course of finding a killer? So what if, you know, you were uh, a suspect and you didn't know? What if, you know, someone had your family tree on a wall and they were trying to draw connections and in the end it was a dead end? But, you know, what if all of this was being known about you without your uh, knowledge. And so I think that changes it. I mean, for every, uh, you know, sort of notorious serial killer that we, you know, um, get evidence about, there are likely hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of um, personal DNA profiles that are trolled through without a subpoena and without the permission of the, you know, the people whose um, evidence is looked at. And so I try to to sort of juxtapose what sound like, you know, sort of feel good criminal justice stories with the, the, the process that that requires and the infringement on people's sort of privacy and can anything like informed consent and in the process of, of doing that. It's not just about you as the individual or you as the ego and a pedigree, genealogical pedigree chart. Um, it's really about social obligations and your obligations to other people. And so I think for me, when I when people are asking me whether or not they should do genetic genealogy, I'm I'm increasingly trying to get them to understand that um, there this is um, about an individual decision, but it's also about community and communal ethics. And uh, you know, another way I think to drive the point home is to say, you know, does your sister, your brother, your uncle, you know, paternal uncle, if you're doing, you know, sort of Y chromosome testing or something, want to know um, that there might be a disease that runs in your family or something, you know, that they don't know about? Um, and what are you going to do about that? And how are you going to think about that? Um, you know, these are things that people should should think through before making the decision. So in, in the social life of DNA, you sort of talk a lot about how, well, A, I thought it was really interesting that you sort of talk about how you changed your mind a bit about this. You sort of came in being like, don't do this. This is not useful. This can't give you the information. Then you kind of, I think, understood a little bit more about why people might do it, even if it's still not your favorite choice or favorite method. But you talk a little bit about, or a lot about actually in the book, um, about the ways that this can begin a conversation, but cannot be sort of the means by which we talk about um, the work around reconciliation and reparations or anything like that. Um, 
So I guess I'm curious, like, let's say somebody does the test and they, they want this to be the beginning. What would you say would be, should be the next step once you have this information in hand? What happens next? The subtitle of the book is, um, uh, of my book is, includes, you know, reparations and reconciliation. And so to be uh, in a moment in 2020 in which we as a society are yet again really trying to reckon with these things, um, I think is is fascinating because I think that what the what I was capturing in my book, and, and as you said, um, wasn't a big fan of this, but found myself deeply um, empathetic and sympathetic by the time that I was finished, was individuals in their own way trying to grapple with the history of racial slavery in this country and our lack of in some cases, interest as a nation. I mean, obviously, lots of people are interested in this, but is it and, and and doing anything about it and taking any action, um, and sort of being forthright, you know, uh, about um, this history and its implications for people's lived experience. And so, you know, for me, the reconciliation projects, these genealogical aspirations that become these sort of projects of seeking and discovery, um, are were about people's, I think, individual, familial, community-based playing out of a refusal again and again to really reckon with that history. You know, what I what I came to appreciate about, um, about direct-to-consumer testing is that it became a, a vehicle for conversation. It became a way for, you know, me to say to you, hey, Rose, I found this thing out. Um, and the thing that I found out about my family was only two generations ago. It was three generations ago. Uh, this uh, narrative that we've been fed about the history of racial slavery and of people being in bondage, being so, so far away, so, so distant, is actually closer in time than we can imagine. And And I think, you know, temporality is a tricky thing, but I think we understand the temporality of grandparents, right? We understand that, you know, one's great-great-grandparent was born to parents who were enslaved, even if they were children when they were enslaved. But like that, to have, um, you know, a different way of, of telling that story. And then for me, you know, to be your neighbor or your social media friend, to tell that to you means for all of us, it is not something that's distal. It is proximate, it is living, and it is real in the world. So I think that the testing um, offers that, you know, you can, it can get closer, it can be more visceral, it can be more proximate. But fundamentally, as we're seeing now, uh, the work of dismantling, you know, structural, systemic, multi-generational, genealogical racism huh, um, takes much, much more. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I also end my the book, A Meditation on, on on ignorance and on deliberate ignorance around, you know, even if these are, you know, the quote unquote facts of the case, uh, you know, a society, a community has to decide um, that these are the the facts that they're going to run with and uh, and and reckon with, um, and so, uh, you know, fundamentally, I am I'm I'm deeply sympathetic about the the endeavor, but I also um, understand it occurs in a context of uh, deep historical amnesia that right now we're living in um, uh, a refusal to sort of live in that amnesia. Right. So much of your book is sort of grappling with like the need for proof, right, to prove that you actually came from these people specifically in order to even have the conversation around reparations. Do you feel as though 
there has been a shift in this question of like proof and proving who you are in this way when it comes to, you know, black Americans in the U.S.? Has this changed at all? Will there be less of an appetite for these kinds of tests, do you think? Or are we still kind of in the same place? That's a great question. I I think what I'd say right now, and it might change in a week, (laughs) things are are, (laughs) are very dynamic in this moment, um, is... Is that right now we are we've we've kind of stepped away from the proof conversation um, because the proof conversation was a red herring. It was it was about the the agnotology. It was about the, the the sort of deliberate ignorance. Like if you can't demonstrate it to me, I refuse to see it. I refuse to you know admit or you know that even deign to consider that this could be true. Uh, I think that um, with the coronavirus pandemic that had that has snapped us had already snapped us all to attention that had kept us both captured many of us who had the privilege of doing so had captured and captivated us around forms of media about what was happening with the coronavirus um, in the US and abroad that there was and that immediately drew our attention to forms of inequality um, and uh, the infection and death rates. And also drew our attention immediately to the fact that these were because of structural issues. So so I I do think it really matters that we were all paying attention because we didn't have anything else to do. And that part of what we were paying attention to is that disparity and that the the disparity and death uh, and infection rates. And I think that we had enough really important work had been done that we could move to a place of really understanding the sort of systemic ecology that creates racial health disparities and disparate outcomes. And then we had Breonna Taylor killed, George Floyd killed. And I think the priming of um, a sense of connection that we didn't have, uh, you know, not that that the outcomes of the pandemic are the same by any stretch of the imagination for all of us. But, you know, I I think we can go there kind of five or 10% with like, this shows that we're all interrelated and like, we're all in it together. The rest of the 90%, we need to leave it alone, because there's too much um, differentiation in the experience. Uh, So I think all of those together, um, brought us to a place where the, the proof, you know, the sort of granular proof of um, a genetic test matters less than the proof of the lived experience. I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of disparate outcomes of the pandemic become a kind of proof, a kind of powerful proof that is, that is fatal, um, that, is, that, that shows the sort of disparate life chances. Um, and, uh, and so, so I think that there will still be, I think, trying to, for a long time, trying to unravel the relationship between the economic crisis, the pandemic crisis, and, uh, you know, what I hope is a successful endeavor at real racial recognition, uh, reconciliation, rather, um, in the United States. But I think that it, it both gave overwhelming proof and then sidestepped the, the, the other proof conversation, which was, as I said, a bit of a red herring. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. This Great is to talk so fun. To you. I'm so glad we finally got to connect. Me too. My pleasure. 
Do you have a question about the future? Some conundrum you're facing now, or one that you think we might face in the future? Send it in. You can send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com or call 347-927-1425 and leave a voice message. And now, a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to try and sell you something. This episode is brought to you by Carvana. Let's say you need a new car. Well, a new used car. Uh, now this is my groove car. A you car. Now, what if you could seal the deal and order it to your door 100% online? Buyer's remorse, no such thing. Take a week to love it or return it. Sound good? Carvana, they'll drive you happy. Availability may vary by market. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. I want to talk about proof. As a journalist, I care a lot about it. Last episode, we talked about how to gather it, how to find proof that something is real or fake. Proof is sort of a cousin of truth. Or maybe proof is truth's bouncer or bodyguard. Proof is the linchpin, the thing you can wave around if you have it, the thing that gives you authority and bragging rights and power. But it's not that simple, right? Proof to one person might not be proof to another. Certain forms of proof are valued and certain forms aren't. Sometimes you need proof and sometimes you don't. Sometimes the proof you can provide isn't enough, even if everybody knows that you're right. Proof can look like a singular recording of one unit of police brutality. Eight minutes and 47 seconds of video. But proof is not action. In the early 2000s, a series of lawsuits started popping up around the country. The details of each was slightly different, but the basic gist was the same. Ancestors of slaves wanted damages for the suffering they and their families incurred. Reparations. Companies that had made millions of dollars on the slave trade were continuing to profit, and those whose ancestors built that wealth as slaves wanted some of that money. And what drives you? Justice. I'd like to see, I'd like to see that the truth is told and that these corporations that uh, committed horrendous acts against my ancestors pay restitution. They should not be able to keep assets they acquired, stealing people and stealing labor. If our ancestors, and they did, created that wealth, then it seems to me in a very logical way that the status descendants should benefit from that, from that wealth. In 2002, one of these cases went before a judge. Contrary to Judge Norgel's version of history that he put out in his order, the end of chattel slavery, the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution did not produce a land of milk and honey for formerly enslaved Africans. Judge Norgel's version of history upon which he predicates his decision to, to uh, deny us equitable tolling 
is based ignores the issue of lynchings, ignores the the the, the reality of sharecropping, of Jim Crow of the Ku Klux Klan, which reigned supreme for almost a hundred years uh, following the end of chattel slavery. And how that supports equitable tolling, because, <clears throat> because um, uh, these <clears throat> wrong the slave trade and, and exploitation by businesses are... <clears throat> this has been known for a long time, right? This is not something that was suddenly discovered three years ago. What was discovered was the, the particularity of who the defendants were. And and that is why equitable that is why equitable tolling is proper in, in this in this case. But if you think you've been wronged and you don't know who the tortfeasor is, but you know there's been some wrong, you know there uh, you've been injured by something, then you have to investigate. The judge rejected the argument because, quote, the plaintiffs did not demonstrate a precise connection to former slaves and thus could not sue for injury as their descendants. In other words, the judge wanted specific proof that these specific people were direct descendants of former slaves that had specifically helped the companies named in the lawsuit make money. A very particular type of proof. And to get that proof, some of those defendants turned to DNA. They proved links to specific plantations and slave owners. But of course, that didn't work either. Why not? What kind of proof would be required? And here we reach the impossible question, the infinite Gordian knot of the human mind. Proof is not action. Proof, this slippery and ever-changing thing, is only powerful if you want it to be. When we are not deeply attached to a worldview, when we want to change our minds, the slightest whiff of proof can be enough. Growing up, we were German. We danced in a German dance group. I wore lederhosen. When I first got on Ancestry, I was really surprised that I wasn't finding all of these Germans in my uh, tree. I decided to have my DNA tested through Ancestry DNA. The big surprise was we're, we're not German at all. 52% of my DNA comes from Scotland and Ireland. So I traded in my lederhosen for a kilt. Ancestry has many paths to discovering your story. Get started for free at Ancestry.com. But when proof challenges more deeply held assumptions, structures, power, people, then suddenly there is never enough of it or the right kind of it. You can drown in a sea of proof and never change your mind if you try hard enough. You can watch an infinite number of videos of police brutality and still resist the idea that the police are a problem. There will never be a proof stronger than the human will to resist it. Proof is a red herring, a tempting evil spirit, an irrational faith. It is so appealing to believe that if you simply rearrange the deck chairs on the SS proof, you will finally show people the way. Consider the political chaos of the United States. Every day, it seems, every time some member of the administration flops, 
botches an interview, gets caught in a lie, admits to rolling back pandemic measures so that more people in blue states die, there is this idea that finally this will be the piece of proof that pushes the nation over the edge. The proof that pulls the emergency brake. That this time, the bouncer that is proof will finally break up the fight and restore order. But proof is not action. Proof is only as powerful as people want it to be. So what does DNA prove, then? What power can it have over us and within us? It's a funny thing to say that the substance that writes every single instruction that makes up every piece of your most inner workings means nothing. That it proves nothing. And yet, what does DNA prove exactly? Your family line, your building blocks. But it cannot prove to a court that it should take you seriously. It cannot prove to a system that you deserve care and protection. In the words of Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And perhaps there is a silver lining here. If we allow DNA to be the proof of our entire value of who we are and who we have been and who we will ever be, we give in to a certain kind of sad quantification of the human. A world where rather than listening, we purely count. Finding yourself and your place in space and time and history is hard and painful and confusing. DNA offers a soothing window into a quantified world of provability and conclusion. But it's a scam. And speaking of scams, here's one for you now. What's the appropriate gift to get to people you just found out were your siblings thanks to a DNA test? Oh my goodness. Okay, we're back. And today we're talking gifts. Okay, Dolly, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard sometimes to shop for gifts for my family. Oh my God, so hard. Do you have a relative that's the hardest to shop for? My dad, hands down. He never wants anything. And if he wants something, he just buys it for himself, huh? Yes. How did you know? He's a dad. I'm sure all the viewers out there have someone in their life just like that. For me, it's my uncle. Absolutely impossible to shop for. But you know what has made it so much easier for me? What? Three words. D-N-A. I had a feeling you'd say that. You know I'm all about it. I do. So tell the viewers who might not know what you mean. My pleasure. So you all know what DNA is, I'm sure. Thank you, high school biology. But what does it have to do with gifts? Well, what if I told you that we were doing a special offer to help you use your DNA to match you with the perfect presence? I'd say sign me up. It's incredible, right? So, you might think that DNA simply tells you about your heritage, maybe your biology, disease risk, yada yada, but there is so much more information coded in that genetic information of yours. So much. And with our special package, which is called the Base Pair Program, isn't that clever? We'll pair your genes with the perfect set of gifts. All you do is send in a sample, and you'll get a personalized gift catalog tailored exclusively for you. Yes, and the amazing thing about this is that the more complete your genetic family tree, the better your gift catalog is. So if you add your dad, your brother, your mom to your profile, that catalog is going to suggest gifts for them too. 
It's truly like nothing else out there. I had no idea what to get my dad. So I sent in his spit from a leftover napkin and boom, suggestions. His specific DNA said that he'd like, you're truly never going to guess it. I won't because I don't know his DNA. A pocket knife. What? A pocket knife? I know. I'd never have thought to get my dad that. Amazing. Okay, I think we're getting a phone call right now, actually, from a customer. Darcy Noel Apgar, is that you? It's me. I'm here. Darcy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Darcy, tell us about your base pair experience. I want all the details. Oh my goodness. Base pair has taken all the pain out of my holiday shopping, let me tell you. I gathered up samples for my whole family while they were sleeping, which was no small feat, let me tell you. Uh, and I sent them all in and the catalog was perfect. No more worrying about whether Christmas morning was going to go well. Nope, none of that. And I'm so glad I got a sample from my mother before she died so I could stock her funeral with all the right mementos. Amazing. Darcy, tell us, was there a gift that went over even better than you expected? Oh, good question. Yes, I can think of one. My son, all he ever wants to do is play video games all day, all the time. And he asked for more video games, but of course I'm not going to get him more video games. Of course not. But the catalog identified that he has flexible lips, something I admit I would never have known, and suggested a harmonica. And let me tell you, he loves it, and he's so good at it. And I would never have known. A secret talent. Thank you, Darcy, for calling in. Thank you. Base Pairs is really changing the game when it comes to gifts. I'm telling you. And now for just one incredibly low payment of $234.88, you can get a five-year subscription to the personalized catalog. A steal. A real steal. But really priceless, we're always getting the best possible gifts. What do we always say? The, the DNA, DNA never, never lies. lies. So call now and get your perfect present sorted. Forever! It's data. Advice for and from the future is written, edited, and performed by me, Rose Evelyn. Theme music is by Also Also Also, who has a new album out called The Good Group, which you can get on Bandcamp. Thanks to Danielle for your question and to Dr. Alondra Nelson for joining me to talk about DNA. Thanks to Dunya for asking about gifts for new relatives. The voice actors you just heard selling a scammy DNA service are Shara Kirby, Ashley Kellum, and Henry Alexander Kelly. You can learn more about all of them and their projects by following the links in the show notes. Additional music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you are interested in hearing more about the connections between genetics and race, specifically for Black Americans, there is a great podcast called In Those Genes that is all about that, so go check that out. If you want to ask a question for or from the future, send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com. Advice for and from the future is part of the Flash Forward Presents Network. Go to ffwdpresents.com for more about that. Until next time.